It's October 4th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. We'll start with the hypersonic world. Raytheon ends air launch hypersonic vehicle test drought from Aviation Week. A demonstrator for a hypersonic missile flew faster than Mach 5 for 300 nautical miles above 60,000 feet over Western training ground in mid-September, finally breaking the nine-year drought of a successful testing of an air-launched U.S.-made hypersonic vehicle. So this is the the Hawk, of course, um, which came out of DARPA, right? And um, it's the it's a cruise missile variant, hypersonic cruise missile. So it's a little bit different than the kind of discussions we've been having over Aero from the Air Force, which actually does use the uh, DARPA stuff too, right? Like the tactical boost glide. So I don't know. There's all there's all kinds of like intermingling of uh, you know common glide vehicles and and bodies and stuff like that. But interesting stuff. Good to good to see a success. Yeah, I mean DARPA kind of picked up the mantle when the when the Air Force didn't really uh, uh, kind of kind of uh, backed off on hypersonics. So for yeah, from like I guess 2010 probably up until just recently um, with the with the uh, MTA programs that were approved. It's pretty much been DARPA. And yeah, they funded the, the hyperglide vehicle was, you know, it was definitely sort of where they saw the, the technology going, but they decided to fund the Hawk too, which was more of a scramjet. And so, yeah, it's, it's good. I think it's really helpful that that they actually decided to do that back in 2017 because it gives, it gives a couple options because the scramjet might be something that, um, can be operationalized a little bit quicker. I, I, I think they'll be operationalized very quickly. And, and then they can, um, you know, kind of perfect that. And then Hyperglide has other issues, right, with it, you know, in terms of uh, it kind of, you know, potentially looking like an ice and other things. So there's other, there's other, is there issues to kind of work out with that? Um, so yeah, so this is good. It looks like they plan to stage two more, two more flight tests um, of the Hawk three of the, um, of the arrow, and then they'll, um, yeah, then they'll compete them, compete them as part of the side fire program. So, uh, so yep, no, good to, good to see the, good to see progress here. So the next one we got Lockheed Martin's precision strike missile enters next phase with army breaking defense. The U S army's precision strike missile program takes another, another step towards fielding in 2023 with the service awarding prime contractor Lockheed Martin 62 million for the next phase of the effort. Prism PR. SM, which is a precision strike missile, has a maximum range of 300 kilometers or 186 miles. The Army officials described PRISM's goal uh, range as 500 kilometers or more, around 310 miles. In an earlier test flight this year at White Sands, New Mexico, it flew 400 kilometers or about 250 miles. Fiscal 2022 budget documents show that the Army wants to dedicate $5 million to exploring critical technologies to extend the range of PRISM to 1,000 kilometers or more. The Army also plans to purchase 110 missiles in the next fiscal year, 2022, for about 166 million. So the Army is definitely serious about this. Uh, and they keep trying to want to expand, <laughs> expand the range, I guess, for relevance and, and not getting canceled, right? But uh, you know, some more movement and precision strike missile. And it seems like, well, you know, the, the battle of long range fires will continue. Yeah, they have a, an interesting article kind of accompanying this was a, was about their their larger um, let's see here what they what they call it it's part of their multi domain task force where they where they have basically kind of have a different type of long range fires and you know some of them uh, basically are operated by different uh, you know different levels at the army so you have you know the Urca that you know that uh, that one that that kind of shot down 
part of one of those early ABMS that shot down one of those drones. Um, the long range, the cannon thing uh, was, uh, what does the Earth stand for? I can't forget. But that was, that was uh, that's one that'll be oh, extended range, yeah, extended range cannon artillery, which basically doubles the range of current cannons. And that, uh, that will be more at the division level. And then they'll have uh, other ones operating, you know, down at the brigade and, um, and the headquarters level, the core, core, core level. So, so for the PRS, that's going to replace, it's going to be more at the core headquarters level. That'll replace the ATACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, which right now, I guess, only has a range of 185 miles. So yeah, this precision uh, strike missile will be 300 to 1,000, so substantially better. Um, but yeah, it's part of a, it's part of a family um, of ones they're going after, uh, replacing some other ones, GMLAR, extended range, the um, the IRCA, and then the MRC is kind of that uh, really, really long range um, one that, that'll be um, the next thing that they probably start to start spending a lot of uh, energy on after, after this sort of uh, stabilizes. So yeah, Army's got a lot of, a lot of work for different missiles and different cannons and all kinds of stuff to, uh, you know, keep back the, keep back the Russians. So going to the Russians now, Russia completes flight tests of Circon hypersonic missile naval news. According to the source, the next Circon trials are planned to begin in November, and they are expected to continue into 2022. After that, the delivery of the missiles to Russian armed forces will begin. It was reported in July 19th that the Admiral Gorshkov frigate had successfully test launched the Circon hypersonic missile against a ground target. The missile flew at Mach 7 and covered distance more than 350 kilometers, 275 miles. So a little bit of, of Russia watch. This is the, the hypersonic missile that we've kind of known about for a little while. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, we, we hear these stories, but they're at kind of a high level, you know, like I think some of these issues of like how targeting is actually done and how effective they'll be. Um, maybe that gets back to some of Frank Kendall's problems with the hypersonic missiles, but he seems to believe Russia has a pretty clear requirement against for it while we maybe not so much. Well, yeah, particularly this missile, um, because it's, uh, they, they actually fired these from, you know, those universal vertical launchers that kind of look like, they almost look like containers, um, like it could be shipping, you know, uh, you know, like uh, matchbox, car, matchbox cars or something. And instead they have, you know, <laughs> hypersonic cruise missiles in, in them. Um, so they fire, yeah, they, these Circon uh, anti-ship missiles are fired, um, yeah, from, from warships and then also from submarines and from mobile uh, mobile coastal missile launchers. So yeah, it definitely seems like uh, yeah, flying at Mach seven, covering 350 miles, you know, pretty uh, pretty threatening to a lot of different uh, maritime vessels that would be in that range and that might not be able to defend effectively against something flying that fast and uh, and being yeah being able to cover that distance. So yeah, that's kind of scary if they if they've proven this out and they're actually ready to kind of start to scale it up. So Navy acquisition chief outlines FY22 priorities from defense news. The U S Navy will prioritize readiness and sustainment in the new fiscal year. The acting Navy acquisition chief told defense news fiscal 2022 is starting under a continuing resolution that won't allow new programs to start or procurement quantities to increase. But Jay Stefani, the acting assistant secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition said that it's not problematic for the Navy this year as it had been in the past. Most of the aviation programs, he said, are either well into production line or in sustainment. The Navy's shipbuilding plan 
largely mirrors last year's. So, you know, in general, this seems, you know, we've heard from CQ Brown and General Berger from the Marines that they were kind of, you know, thinking about this readiness modernization trade-off and maybe potentially pushing towards more modernization. The Navy here kind of is just saying we can actually, you know, we should modern, we should uh, prioritize sustainment to some degree and modernization can kind of just follow the path. Um, it almost seems like this is getting towards your biennial budgeting idea, right? Like, hey, well, the next year is kind of the same as last year, so we don't really need to worry about that. Yeah, I didn't know if this was, I mean, I think part of it is they, the Navy has most of the stuff, the big stuff they want, right? I mean, they have the Ford class, they got the DDGs funded, uh, they got their, you know, they're working on the Columbia. So it, there's not a lot of big, big investments that aren't already, you know, aren't already in the pipeline. So yeah, and then the other piece is I think they're, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're still working on their the the long range uh, ship ship plan. And so this might be maybe buying themselves a little bit of time to say, yeah, let's just keep going with what we have. We focus on sustainment for this next budget cycle. But then once the new plan comes out, maybe it includes some things that you know that we don't expect. And so maybe that does start to change the game, and maybe more R and D comes into play. But one thing I did love about this article was that talking about how they're creating 3D models. I mean, we've talked a lot about this, creating 3D models of, of all four naval yards uh, using, you know, digital twins to test ideas for new layouts, um, you know, allowing it to run different like iterations of yard designs. So you can kind of see, you know, what's the best, best way to get the right materials, you know, through the yard. I'm hoping that that includes kind of that modular, you know, modular equipment that you could you know, shift to build, you know, different types of ships and not just be, uh, you know, as focused as they are now, but, you know, so I'm hoping that they, they use this opportunity, um, you know, they got to up, upgrade their dry docks because of the Ford class and that Virginia class, you know, submarines are too big um, and require a lot more power and stuff. So hopefully they can use this to, you know, really kind of modernize those yards and make it, um, make it more adaptable. But, but yeah, I, I, I did kind of laugh. <laughs> I did kind of laugh a little bit about you know, for the first CR, we don't have a long list. Well, you almost never get anomalies in your first CR anyway. It's always almost always a clean, pretty clean CR. So <laughs> that's like, it's almost like built in now to the DoD budget. Everybody expects to have three months where they're not going to get a, be able to do new starts or, you know, award like additional quantities. So I thought that was kind of funny, but yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny, right? The Pete sent us that article from, uh, or the GAO study that found yeah. continuing resolutions, not a big deal, right? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the Navy actually did. They came out with a June 2021 shipbuilding plan, 30-year shipbuilding plan, and the CBO came out with their analysis of it, of course, already. Um, I guess the, the big thing there was that they actually reduced the, the total manned battle force and unmanned from kind of like the over 500 realm to the 400 to 500 realm. Um, and a lot of that was being kind of cut out of unmanned surface vessels and unmanned undersea vessels. So I don't know, maybe that's where they needed to accelerate to a degree. And maybe the CR is like, okay, there might, you might not see immediately a big impact from the CRs, but that's just because like what you said, it's been built into the bureaucracy, right? <laughs> so it's like everyone comes to expect everyone has these mitigation um, tactics around it, but it actually doesn't help move things forward or make the changes or adapt adaptations necessary to kind of you know, bring about the force that everybody wanted. 
Yeah, and essentially, I mean, the CR essentially, um, you know, it robs, you know, a full quarter away from any kind of new starts, right? So, you know, typically programs budget their funding for, for the full year and they immediately lose one quarter uh, of their execution power. So yeah, if you were, if you were starting some, some new effort on man, uh, you know, some, some new type of underwater drone or something, yeah, you, you pretty much would be, uh, would be stuck for, for at least like three months. So, but yeah, DOD has always had a hard time sort of articulating like the operational impact of CR. So I wasn't so like completely surprised by that report, but, um, but I definitely, uh, definitely would be good if the Navy can articulate, you know, if they do have to go into a second CR period and say, you know, these are all the impacts we can't, we can't do what we need to do and we're going to have to delay things. So, yeah. And I wonder how much the, uh, the kind of Navy getting hit over the head on the, the ship maintenance delays is kind of pushing them back towards that readiness. You know, they're, I don't know. It always seems like the priorities kind of swing back and forth. And it's like, once you kind of get gel in one place, then the other, you know, the, the head bobs up and then you got to smack it back down somewhere else. But uh, actually, well, uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, well, especially if you if you know that you're going to have to extend the life on some some of your vessels, because, you know, I think we're going to talk about it in one of the next articles. But, yeah, if you have to do any life extensions, you, you start to and, you know, you're not going to have the replacements in time where you can avoid sort of some of those sustainment bills. Then I think you start to get you sort of have to get more serious about it. Right. And, and plan for those overalls and refuelings and stuff that you know, that are costly and time consuming. Yeah. I think, you know, if they started retiring ships, like they should be that, then that goal would definitely be coming back down. Cause a lot of their ability to kind of reach a higher uh, fleet target is based on the extension plus kind of a buildup in ship building capacity, but not really. It's mostly like by delaying a lot of that stuff. Um, the Ohio class submarines, of course, are getting their life extended. The G 51s are probably going out to you know, 35 plus years, 40 years, um, and a lot of other ones as well. So we'll see, that's definitely going to put a strain on, on the maintenance. So, uh, and we'll see, see what happens there. The next one we got right in the same field, U S Navy reorganizes submarine enterprise to address challenges in construction and maintenance defense news. This one was actually super interesting and had a bunch of stuff throughout. So this is going to be a little bit of a long, uh, readout, but I think it's all important. The new organization aligns the all-new Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine activities and legacy Ohio-class activities, both the SSBN, the, the ballistic missile submarines that carry nuclear missiles and are converted um, SSGNs that call conventional missiles under a single flag officer, now Program Executive Office for Strategic Subs. Similarly, all attack submarine work building and sustaining the Virginia class seeing the Los Angeles class through its remaining life, early phases of research and design of the next generation SSNX and SSN specific mission systems, those will all fall under the new PEO attack submarines. And a new PEO undersea warfare systems will oversee submarine combat systems and weapons, undersea communication systems, training and safety programs, and more, and will serve as the undersea domain lead for Project Overmatch, which is which seeks to net together manned and unmanned Navy assets in all domains. So this is kind of how, I guess, the, the thing has been broken back out. There was kind of like the Columbia class program, which was its own PEO, actually, right? And then you had kind of PEO subs, which had everything else. And then there was also kind of a, you know, a functional office within NAVC that, that dealt with kind of, you know, mission systems for um, 
submarines and they've kind of reorged that whole thing. And now we have three. And I think this actually kind of gets back to some of the thesis, right? You kind of have these two vertical-ish program executive offices for, you know, strategic subs and then attack subs. And then you kind of have this, you know, matrix of other organization that's also kind of providing, um, you know, common systems as well as, you know, network and communications and integration with Project Overmatch and all of that. So it seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, PEO subs was definitely huge. So kind of makes sense, I guess, to break that down to human size um, and maybe, you know, give the PEO for Columbia class a little bit more responsibility. But Columbia class is still a huge program, right? $100 billion in, you know, base year, whatever dollars um, for, for 10 ships, 12 ships, 12 ships. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess there part of it made sense to me. Um, yeah, the new yeah PO attack PO uh, for strategic subs. Um, not not totally not too too different. But then yeah, the undersea warfare systems PO. Um, yeah, overseeing submarine combat systems and weapons, undersea comm systems training and safety programs and more. It, it is kind of interesting. Just the the comm piece and, and things that are common across those platforms kind of makes sense, but at the same time, like, it just strikes me that attack submarines and, you know, um, the the uh, strategic sub subs, you know, are fairly different in their missions and a lot of their systems, you know, the sub strategic subs, right, are going to have all that sort of robust NC3 sort of uh, comm stuff. It is like, there are a lot of differences. So it is kind of, will be interesting to see what that overlap, if we do get to see that, that overlap, um, that that the PO for undersea warfare systems has because that's always sort of a strange one. Like if you own the the if you are the PO for that platform, but the bunch of components on there now have to come from another PO. Uh, you know there could be some maybe you know unhealthy overlap or some you know diversion or diffusion of responsibility. And you know do you want that on a sub? So I don't know. This will do be you think that happens with the uh, PEO ships and PEO? integrated warfare systems i mean they kind of already deliver i mean some of that is kind of like missile systems but others yeah. is kind of like core mission systems yeah no you're you're right they, they def that definitely happens because some of the you know the the um comm systems radar systems and stuff yeah are definitely common across multiple ship lines but for subs that are such like integrated you know super integrated systems um and that are on such a you know kind of a crazy time schedule in terms of, you know, they only have their one chance and they're on a compressed schedule anyway. I don't know. This seems like, I'm kind of curious to, to know more of the details here. I think we're just seeing kind of the surface of the water. <laughs> but yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see like how that, how that all plays out because they kind of showed a chart in that article. And so I was trying to see the undersea director um, has like in-service submarines, special mission systems, and then training, logistics, and some other things that I wasn't totally familiar with. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to learn more about how that matrix works. Yeah. I, well, hopefully, you know, like open mission systems from the Navy was kind of like piloted, created from the Virginia class, right? And hopefully, you know, Columbia is kind of following suit. So maybe there is some, you know, disaggregation that is possible from, from that group. But I, something I did learn that was interesting here, you remember when we were talking about you know, JATC2 kind of being falling under just C4ISR, that PEO in the Navy. And they're like, we're going to consolidate all of that. And we're like, well, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, there's some, 
additional information here. And so I'll just go back to the quote. Quote, Stefani said that the Navy is creating domain leads to report to NAV War Commander Rear Admiral Doug Small. A surface lead will reside within PEO ships. An aviation lead will stand up at Naval Air Systems Command. A Marine Corps lead will be established at Marine Corps Systems Command. And the Navy land lead will be set up um, under Small's own Naval Information Warfare Systems Command. So we got like four kinds of like reporting leads that will that are kind of at the command level, right? So they probably have a bunch of PEOs that kind of from them, except for PEO ships. But I guess <laughs> Nav C. It's, it's interesting why it's not at Nav C rather than PEO ships in that respect. But um, you know, as they report to Nav War, they go straight to Small, which is also interesting because Small is above. PEOC for ISR. So but I guess he's kind of like at a high enough level that kind of allows for that integration. But it seems like, you know, they aren't just kind of putting all the duties in one place. It's really going to be kind of a matrix kind of coordinated approach um, rather than a single all responsibility ends up here. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, it does seem that way. Um, one last interesting thing here was um, as in-service Virginia's arrived for maintenance, the Navy found it had to replace parts that weren't supposed to be needing replacement. Since there aren't spares available, maintainers have had to take parts off the construction line, slowing down production at Electric Boat and Newport New Shipbuilding and contributing to those new boats being late. So that's pretty, I thought that was a little interesting thing. And I guess they're really trying to, you know, put together. I wonder, you know, if you kind of separate the maintenance and sustainment um, responsibilities across you know, strategic subs and attack subs, are you losing potentially some coordination on the background? I don't know. Um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. The one thing that did surprise me a little bit was that they didn't actually designate like an unmanned underwater or undersea uh, sort of <laughs> directorate. Like um, that, that's, that would have seemed like, you know, based on all the, all the kind of the projects we've seen going on with uh, Ghost Fleet and some of the R&D projects, that, that seemed like it would have been. I don't know. Well, I don't think those programs are big enough to warrant any, well, maybe you could like take those little programs out of unmanned and small combatants um, and then throw it in there. But it seems a little bit premature and I don't know, might, might be good to keep that kind of where it is for now. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll see where, as that becomes a bigger, bigger part of the budget, if it does, then we'll see, maybe we'll see see some uh, additional additional reorg. Yeah, and that's one of the things, right? It's like it's always going to be changing. You always see these reorgs kind of happening, but um, you know, you don't have to be super premature about them. So the next one we got report sheds light on changes to Navy's Constellation class breaking defense. An informational slide in the previous report uh, provides several specific changes that FMM made to the parent design. Um, that's Fin Cantieri Marine. Um, as part of their Constellation class proposal. Those changes include the bow design being modified to remove the sonar dome and enclosure deck for stability, the ship's displacement being increased by about 500 tons, topside modifications to allow for Navy weapons, and the hull length was increased by 23.6 feet to accommodate larger generators and future growth. As of now, the first frigate is scheduled to join the fleet around 2026 or 2027. Whether that happens remains to be seen. So I think we've known for a little while that there was uh, that they were actually changing some of the design. They're saying, oh, well, you know, the internal, you know, design is not really changed. Everything's going to be in the kind of the same place. So it's not that big of a deal. 
but you know, here was I think a little bit more information. They had a nice infographic of of what it looked like from you know the parent design to to what the constellation class will be, and I think to some degree. I'm not really sure, you know, what was that going to do to costs? I don't know. It doesn't really seem like they're saying much about that, but um, it looks like it makes a little bit of sense. Future growth is definitely something we can expect out of the Navy, right? So <laughs> the better you can plan for that um, up front and realize um, that that will happen, probably the better in the long run. Yeah, I thought the bigger the bigger um, sort of interest item here was that the um, that the independence class, even though after they they talked about this being sort of a common, you know, you know, basically, you know, stable parent design and, you know, no real changes, all kind of interoperable and, and things like that. It was like it was after that that they actually decided to uh, to make to make these changes. So it, it like there was like a sort of a shuffle with the RFPs and the, the way the contracts were awarded, it sounds like where this wasn't as solidified when they were initially starting it. And then it sounds like um, uh, the, uh, oh, what's the company's company's name here? Incantieri. Um, Incantieri, yeah, the, the Italian company. When the Italian company came in and proposed all these up and said, yeah, if you guys do it, you know, if you guys do this, you can get, you know, get these benefits. And it sounds like they made, they came in and made the case, Incantieri, yeah, came in and made the case to say, um, yeah, these are the changes that we would make. Um, and then at, at that point, they actually updated without thinking or without being able to kind of go back and maybe make changes to the defense class. Like maybe they would have actually made some of these changes, but it sounds like they there was like a staggered, kind of a staggered thing going on where uh, this came came after after that other one. So kind of interesting. I guess we'll see see which uh, which one makes the most sense in the long term uh, if this uh, if this actually goes through. I think the way the article concluded this was, you know, as of now, this the new, you know, the new one from Finkateri is scheduled to join the fleet around 26 or 27. Whether that happens remains to be seen. So oh yeah, you could say that about any about <laughs> new new shipbuilding effort, right? <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering, you know, it seemed like were these changes actually done in the proposal or were they part of that negotiate like post-award negotiation process? It's kind of funny, right? Like anything that's not a sealed bid procedure is a negotiated procedure in the government in government contracting, right? So so I guess like it's interesting what what kind of happens after after the award or after the decision is kind of made in the source selection. Well, this is why I've always been a big fan. It complicates source selections for sure. And you know, most, most people that if you're running it, you don't really want to do it, but I've always been a big fan of alternate proposals because, you know, just because you, you've locked down your requirements and you think you have everything, you know, in great shape, there's still sometimes some great ideas out there, but the way that, the way that proposals are written, sometimes, you know, companies are taking a risk uh, by doing, by proposing anything that's not, you know, the letter of the RFP, but if you allow alternate proposals, you can allow them to take a low risk bid and say, this is, you know, this is compliant with everything you seem to want, but there's this other really good idea that you guys did this to be cheaper and work, work better. And you, you know, all that, all those benefits that, that maybe would come with that. You do have to sort of deal with that in source selection and it requires sort of, you know, treating that separately and looking at them and then doing some trade-offs. So, um, but it would inform the negotiations to say, Oh, okay. Maybe we do need to relook at this, and maybe you reissue the RFP. Maybe you take the you take a hit on the on the time because the idea is so good. So I've always been a big fan of that. But it does sound like that's what Thinkateri did here. They came in with 
a bunch of suggestions. I don't know if it happened as an alternate proposal or maybe before the final RFP, but yeah. Next one we got Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin is a toxic workplace. Some current and ex-workers claim an essay from CNBC. Jeff Bezos's company Blue Origin is described as a toxic workplace, according to an essay by 21 current and former employees. The essay claims that the company pushed workers to sign strict non-disclosure agreements, stifles internal feedback, disregards safety concerns, and creates a sexist environment for women. Safety concerns are another key piece of the essay, which alleges that some of the engineers who ensure the very safety of the rockets were forced out. When Jeff Bezos flew to space this July, we did not share his elation, they write. Instead, many of us watched with an overwhelming sense of unease. Some of us couldn't bear to watch it at all, the essay said. That was an interesting little article. I'm not really sure if it was super um, unexpected because we've been hearing a little smattering that Blue Origin is actually kind of more of a traditional style of, of defense acquisition or defense contractor. But um, some of this might be overblown. I guess we'll see. You know, Jeff Bezos got actually up there safely, right? So um, it worked. And um, Blue Origin is actually they just received a few million dollars from the Space Force to continue next generation rocket testing along with Rocket Lab, SpaceX and ULA. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to see. I mean, there's a ton of competition in this space. They're well-funded, but you know, ultimately the proof is in the pudding, so. Yeah, I will say though, if I was the government, I, I would be concerned about this, Not, you know, apart from the you know, um, safety concerns and sex, sexist environment and all that stuff, which, which sounds pretty bad. Um, you know, it's more of like, they don't have a culture. I mean, this goes back to, right, the NASA days with Challenger and, you know, the, some of those historical lessons of, you know, engineers being, you know, very clear that, you know, we don't feel comfortable with this. This is not, you know, this has not been tested right, or this is a new part, or we don't have confidence that this works together. You know, it, it would make me, I think, as a government program manager, maybe tighten up my uh, <laughs> my monitoring of, of these projects, especially maybe the ones that were just awarded by SPEC, uh, the SPEC consortium, because that's not a good culture, right? You want a culture... And I think this is where Elon Musk does a great job is, you know, everybody can, everybody can bring up issues. And in fact, they're, you know, they're required to kind of bring up issues if they see something that's not right and, 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 and try to fix it as fast as possible. So I don't know, it's a bad, bad culture, not just for work environment, but I would say for innovation and for the, you know, kind of those, those future, future cutting edge projects that we're going to, you know, probably, you know, look to Blue Origin as being a, a competitor for. Yeah, definitely. I'd be hearing complaints about a company, you know, burning its people out and not giving them a work-life balance and, and hear those hits first, you know, people like stifling dissent and, you know, flight safety people and all those types of stuff and, you know, potential abuse. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Next one we got securing information age combat capabilities demands a new approach from C4 ISR net. In a perfect world, the notion of common standards makes sense, all systems communicating in the same language. However, reality dictates a far different set of circumstances. The force we have today is composed of numerous generations of technology using different data links and data standards. DARPA has been developing technologies that do not require common standards or open systems to configure, connect, and integrate weapon systems across the domains. Instead of fixating on common standards as the pathway to the future, DOD should seek to mature and field these kinds of mission integration tools. 
To that end, Air Force should establish an integration program executive office to support these kinds of combat-focused systems agnostic mission integration tools. So that was from Heather Penny over at Mitchell Institute. She's been doing a lot of good stuff here in terms of kind of like the, the world of stitches and, and JADS V2. So give her a, a good shout out. But um, I really have to agree with the setup here, right? And I think we've talked about this before that, you know, just having a global set of standards is going to be really a lot harder to come to. And it's probably not going to work out all that well and be adaptive. Whereas the, the, the types of tools that DARPA is building out to do that mission integration after the fact, basically on-demand composing of already compiled, you know, types of systems would is actually the more viable, the more uh, likely way of using knowledge throughout the system to kind of arrive at the capabilities that are necessary. I guess my only pushback would be, do we need a program executive office for this? I, it feels like she just kind of, you know, stepped around the funding issues to some degree, you know, she brought up budget activity eight, um, but like just centralizing it in a program executive office, because then it has a requirement and a funding element and kind of like a path to get money. It doesn't mean it belongs in its own program executive. Like, should that be in the Air Force? Should that be in like also somewhere, another PEO in NAV war, C4ISR takes that over for the Navy and then the Army? Like, how does that all work out? It seems like, you know, these mission integration tools should just be pervasive right um across the force and you know if you had portfolios for each of the other program executive offices then they would be able to make that kind of trade-off and, and put money into these types of things without having to worry about O&M versus rdt &E. maybe they still have some of that but i think that cures a lot of it so interested to hear your thoughts yeah no, i mean i've been a big fan of stitches i think the thing that um because yeah she does bring up a couple sort of uh tangentially funding issues she just mentioned i i love the fact she mentions the industrial age you know sort of a contract but the one thing that strikes me is like where to put stitches and i had sent uh, tim grayson some thoughts on you know how to how to handle this in the system and one of my one of my ideas was to have a a no-cost license that you would basically you could basically just you know give out to um you know maybe within the program office you use it as sort of an enterprise service as Part of your software, you know, factory, whatever you want to call it, um, where you can, you know, kind of test out and see um, if there's any issues and making the different systems work in, you know, in an integration lab environment. But then you you, you also could see that this would be something you would want at the COCOMs because maybe at the different COCOMs they have different systems that they need to talk to one another based on the theater and based on the, you know, the different. Uh, uh, the different systems that, that are unique to that, uh, that COCOM. So yeah, it, it, I think that's one of the tricks is that clearly this should be some type of enterprise service. And given that it's government owned from DARPA, you could do a no cost kind of license and, and, and be able to um, allow different organizations to use it. I guess it's just like, where does it sit in the different, in the ecosystem, who manages it, um, and I'm still really curious about like, were there legal rulings that ACC felt that they had to use RDT&E? Like, I don't really understand why you couldn't use O&M if this was for um, an operationalized uh, capability. Um, you know, if this was something that COCOM was just, you know, using to integrate some, uh, you know, some different systems. So, yeah, I think there's, I think this needs to be whiteboarded. I'd love to be part of that, but um, it is, it is an interesting challenge and clearly Stitch is kind of, 
fills a need that, like you said, it's not going to be solved. The API solution is is not going to be one that is going to be able to be rolled out and assimilated by all the systems out there um, anytime soon. And then, yeah, trying to get the interfaces to all be the same will be, you know, just just folly. So, so this is the best near-term uh, stopgap, it seems, until we can move to something, um, some something that doesn't require this type of, you know, unique, um, you know, kind of uh, integrate integration tool. But, but. Um, yeah, we definitely need to figure out how to scale this across the uh, the right places where it needs to sit. Yeah, my understanding is that um, it's a tool that creates auto-generated code from with a technician. So, like, it's some the O and M people or lawyers will claim it's RDT because you're creating new code, but then it's auto-generated code. Um, and then in RDT E, either it's like, well, that's O and M's job. I have my own you know, requirements and funding and needs for execution. I don't like, that's not my job either. Um, and I'm scratch, you know, I don't have enough, there's never enough RDT money. Right. So I don't know. It seems like, like the, does the government, I guess, need to repurpose, I guess, not only recognize that O&M money should be allowed to be used for this thing, but then also just like, do you need people, right? Like, should there be an MOS or I don't know exactly what it is, but you need a like a cadre of folks that are actually doing it, probably in the combatant commands, but also probably in you know war fighting centers and, and the like um, to prep for that as well. So I don't know exactly what the what the answer is here, but yeah, maybe this is something. Yeah, I, I could definitely make a case for it in OM. I, I think you know I don't think it's like a it's not a major enhancement by just allowing data to talk to one another. I I would argue that with the legal folks, but. It, it does sort of sound like this is a nice fit with the uh, the Jake Ada teams that we've talked about before, uh, where they are going out to the COCOMs to, to see, you know, the, the different, you know, data lakes that they're using and how they can, um, you know, sort of, sort of, maybe, you know, make that, make the data management um, a little bit, you know, easier where they can sort of apply some of these AI algorithms and, and do some interesting analysis that they can't do today. And part of that is getting the data to be able to be shared and to, uh, to be able to, to pull it in the right way that it can, that it's useful. So I don't know, this almost seems like uh, something that could fit into that same type of construct, but yeah, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see where this winds up landing. It definitely has the good thing is that this has enough interest level now that it's, you know, four stars know about it. I think Tim has done a great job marketing this and telling people this is what you need to do. And so it's in the system. I don't think it's going away. So you just see where it ends up. Yeah. I remember when someone sent from DARPA sent me like some slides on, on stitches and I was just like, Holy moly, this is awesome. <laughs> and that's how I got in contact with Dan Pat. Um, and he was just like, after, after the podcast that we did, he was like, why are you even interested in this? And I was like, well, this just seems like, like the answer, right? Like everybody's talking Mosa, Mosa, Mosa. They're not, but they're like seeing past all the problems and a potential realistic federated solution. Like this just seems to make so much sense to me from a kind of complex adaptive systems view or like, you know, a system where you realize you can't just get everybody marching in the same line because like of realities, right? No, no. Yeah. But it, so we'll move on here. Sikorsky celebrates the delivery of this first Connecticut-made high-tech heavy lift helicopter for the U.S. Marines, Hartford Corrent. At a cost of $87 million east, the CH-53K is the largest and most powerful helicopter built in the West. 
program acquisition costs that include research and development and machine tools have grown to $138.5 million per helicopter. Lockheed Martin has received orders for 3353Ks in the Navy program. So Korsky will make 200 heavy lift helicopters over the next 15 years. The, the 53K, a highly computerized aircraft, has the capacity to lift 36,000 pounds, reach a maximum altitude of 18,000 feet, and travel at a speed of up to 170 knots or 195 miles per hour. Now, this is, of course, the CK, which has been long mirrored in, in problems and delays and setbacks. And, you know, one of those things where it's like, we only wanted to use this many composites and then weight growth and everything else. Now we're using a whole ton of composites, right? Um, but it's actually pretty, that's pretty uh, impressive there. Lifts 36,000 pounds. Like that's, uh, that's, that's quite a lot <laughs> for, for a helicopter to, to, be, to be picking up. But, you know, I'm surprised this one never kind of got on the chopping block. Those old CH-53s have definitely been having problems. There was a couple crashes um, not in the too distant past. Um, so those things are actually getting long in the tooth, but, um, you know, this is one of the things that the, the Marines have not really traded off in, in their kind of, you know, more agile, um, acquisition strategies. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where for, for certain environments, you just can't, you know, you can't beat a, a helicopter that can carry, carry a lot of stuff and drop it off wherever you need it. So, you know, so, I mean, a C-17, if you have a little bit of runway, would probably make a lot more sense. But for some of those environments, I guess, you know, the Army and, and the Marine Corps both have decided that they, you know, they need some of these helicopters, even though, you know, 170 knots, 195 is, is not, not that fast, really, right? I mean, it's still, that's, that's still, still like, you know, half the speed of, of, the air, of a lot of the aircraft, and it's, you know, a lot more vulnerable in certain environments and stuff. So, yeah, it is an impressive Pitch, uh, the picture of this aircraft though and you see people next to it it is it is a beast my gosh so yeah it definitely sounds like this isn't going anywhere interestingly though i, I just just for just for fun i looked up the the uh, procurement acquisition cost uh for an f-35a and it's uh it's about 110 million oh come so, on but the, well okay <laughs> they're they're both at the beginning of their life cycle that's one of the problems raised is like well what's the program acquisition unit cost and it's like well most of the the programs in the future so we don't really know what it is because you've baked in like most of the program is that future projection of niceness that you haven't gotten to yet right so you have to be did you look at the program acquisition unit cost if it were if we like cut the program off today i bet you that number would be much higher yeah, yeah, no, you're right. The denominator, the denominator is quantity, and so you always have to, you always have to factor that in. I just, I just thought that was funny. Yeah, no, it's true though, because I was thinking the same thing. Uh, that's like, wow, you know, you can get uh, an F thirty. Well, they, they, they separated the the engine program, but you can get like a, a full up F thirty five for under a you know, hundred million dollars, right? Yeah, um, like, yeah, including the engine. Yeah, because it's like seventy yeah. million without the engine, and then another twenty. Yeah. I think the price went up, but it was at one point it was like, I think 91 or something for the A model. Yeah. Yeah. But still like, I mean, the the CH can actually, you know, lift up, you know, an F-35 and carry it around at 36,000 pounds, (laughs) right? Which is actually funny, pretty funny to think about. You you wouldn't necessarily like picture that in my mind, but I guess they can do it. Yeah. Well, the thing is a hundred feet long. Can you believe that? Like a hundred feet, but that. That is like, uh, you know. Well, how long is a CH-47? Uh, a, a CH-47. 
Uh, it's about 99 feet. Okay, so that that's about the same as a Chinook in, in terms of length. And it's only got, you know, that one main rotor. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, must be generating a ton of lift. Oh, yeah. I bet you could hear that thing come in from, uh, yeah. But that's the problem, right? It's always like, well, it would be nice if the exact same thing that I had was bigger and could lift more and could go farther. And it's just like, well, what kind of, scientific or engineering breakthrough allows that to happen. Right. Um, but you know, the companies are obviously going to say, well, yes, that's your requirement. We'll go do it. Um, and it's like, well, we would have made it bigger if we didn't reach these boundary conditions in the past. Right. It's like one of those things often in my mind. So it's like, whenever you ask for something like, I just wanted it a little bit bigger and faster. It's like, well, you know, you're kind of in surprise for a whole bunch of cost growth because you would have already had that if <laughs> right in the previous programs, if it were that easy. So it's always one of these weird things that's like the thing that seems like an incremental linear change from the thing that you've done is actually far harder potentially than doing something kind of radically new or different um, because you don't really know what that cost or, or, you know, capability might be. I mean, this will be, this will be the challenge with the future vertical lift, right? I mean, they'll, they're going to have to, you know, do some trade-offs in terms of the size of how big they want the aircraft, how much power and every little thing you add there, size, power, you start to pay more and then now you're buying less of them. And so, yeah, there really is sort of like this um, sort of balloon and you can squeeze it in one direction, but, you know, you, 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 you pay for it in a different direction. So, yeah, you're right. Unless this vertical lift kind of program really kind of changes the game and says, you know, okay, we got these really creative turbo turbo fans or scramjets or something that allow you to, you know, get there faster, but without all the, you know, huge, huge blades or, you know, whatever the technology is they're using, you're always going to kind of have the same kind of challenge. Most definitely. China's cloning Kratos's A Valkyrie unmanned combat air vehicle concept from the drive. Like the Valkyrie, the Chinese FH-97 features a stealthy, stealthy trapezoidal fuselage, sharply swept main wings, a V-shaped tail, and an air intake located above the fuselage. Even the fuselage weapons bay features the same stealthy serrated edges on its door. Although the Chinese drone features an electro-optical sensor in a stealthy gold-plated windowed enclosure below the nose. With this in mind, China is also showcasing its concept for a two-seat variant of its J-20 stealthy heavy fighter. The second seat will be highly relevant for a mission controller directing unmanned aircraft and taking care of the overall tactical picture. Similar capabilities are being eyed for the two-seat American fighters equipped with the wide array or wide area displays such as the F-15EX. So this gives, a, I just thought it was interesting, particularly not that China was kind of doing a similar concept as what we're doing here in America. Um, that's not surprising, but you know, it's, it, it's another reason that like the F-15 kind of has some relevance, right? Maybe you can see it, but it, it can't, if it does have uh, some of the, some of the versions of the F-15 that have two seaters. So um, that will be um, useful as, as a kind of controller. It feels like an F-35 pilot will definitely be, they're already talking about kind of like a lot of clutter, right? Like they have to manage a whole bunch in the, in the F-35 and some of the systems are making that easier, but there's still a lot of information to be, to be done. And then controlling, you know, those, uh, those drones might be a tall order. So interesting all around. Yeah, I could definitely see, um, I mean, we kind of saw it with the F-22 when it, when it deployed to Afghanistan. 
where it started started to become a quarterback, right? I mean, it was it was basically a mini AWACS kind of directing uh, the different missions, you know, collating data, you know, at faster speeds and and sharing it to some of the fourth gen fighters, you know, via Link Link sixteen. You know, so it was it was doing a lot of things kind of like a mission controller. And so you could kind of see thinking thinking ahead when we have like fleets of of unmanned aircraft that are more like those, uh, you know, loyal wingmen. You could see maybe a couple F-35s dedicated to managing, you know, uh, maybe a family of drones or a particular a particular set of of. Um, you know, the loyal wingman and maybe some other capabilities and, and maybe you're being responsible for weapons launch or, you know, whatever, while another F-35 is focused on characterizing the threats and sharing, you know, so yeah, it, it could be interesting at some point because I mean, the, the pilot can only do so much. He's only one person in there. It definitely makes it a lot easier to have situational awareness. There's a lot of kind of AI built into weapon selection and things like that. But yeah, you could see in a very, very high high velocity conflict that things are moving fast, you know, maybe you do need to sort of specialize uh, some of those, some of the fifth gen aircraft to be focused on one particular kind of thing. So yeah, interesting how the conops changes as we get more, more of those uh, unmanned drones and uh, fielded. So, but yeah, definitely scary. I think a little bit scary that just the, the progress that China's making, you know, we're, I feel like we've been sort of slow rolling a little bit on Skyboard and some other, you know, potential things that we could be, you know, pushing ahead with. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be really sad if all of a sudden, you know, China has kind of perfected the, the, the mission control piece of these, how to deploy them, you know, develop the tactics around it. And we're still kind of fuddling around with, uh, oh, should we buy 10 or 30 of these, you know, and prototype it, I really hope we don't get to that stage, but it sounds like, it sounds like they're kind of pushing full speed ahead. Yeah, that is, definitely a worry i think over the next few years it's like you know the the budget and the program seems to start shifting a little bit in reaction to nds 2018 but it's like are these things actually going to get money right (laughs) like they got some money they got their kind of like place in the world but then it's like what's going to come from them what where are they going to go and are they going to get enough money at the right time or you know there is a, something to be said like you don't want to overfund some of these new things early on right that's probably true but is there enough diversity is there the chance of them getting the money when they need it um and how would they even recognize that time i don't know well i think it comes down to what the you know general brown's kind of been pushing for and i think secretary kendall was pretty uh you know strong voiced about is I don't think you you'll be able to make those investments the way that you need to if you can't get get if you can't downsize on some of the legacy platforms. So I think you know it's in Congress's court this budget cycle what they what they allow and what they don't allow and especially going forward if they signal these platforms are untouchable don't even think about it in the next budget cycle you know how will we ever find find the money to to make some of these investments? So yeah, it's good. this congressional cycle I'm. I'm extremely intrigued about, um, especially, well, I think the next budget cycle will be even more telling. Yeah. But the fact that we're kind of delaying these, the last budget cycle was pretty telling, right? Like a lot of these things got cut pretty hard. Um, so if you got three in a row of those, then you're really kind of, um, I guess you got about dangle your head down and be like, oh man, what's going on? (laughs) A plastic cap in the KC 46A fuel valve generates more turbulence for the trouble tanker, the drive. 
Deliveries were halted for around a month after plastic debris was found inside the internal fuel line of one of the aircraft as it flew to its future home in North Carolina. The small red cap jammed a valve open, causing an uncontrolled fuel transfer between the tanks. The, United, the Air Force itself has described the program as a lemon out of which it, the service is trying to make lemonade. Last year, it was separately reported that inspections found debris in fuel tanks of almost two-thirds of the undelivered 737 MAX aircraft. So more, more trouble here. We've already kind of talked about the, the next, you know, kind of program that they're looking at for uh, tankers, but they're just going to keep throwing money at the KC-46 and what else can they do, right? Yeah. And I think um, the, I just don't understand it. I mean, I've, I've been on some, I haven't been on the KC-46 production line, but I've been on other production lines and F-35 in particular, you know, a lot of time. And you know, we just never had these problems. I mean, yeah, occasionally, you know, there is something that comes loose or something, but like, this is just consistent. And I mean, this goes back years too, with this, this debris that is, is still in the, um, you know, in the fuselage and stuff. So very, very disconcerting. I think it just doesn't seem to correct itself. And then, you know, to have something like this, where you have an uncontrolled fuel transfer is just super scary. And then, you know, I don't think we can forget that you still have the remote vision system, which is pretty darn critical when you're trying to refuel. Um, and, you know, it's it's pretty challenging for, for the operators. It has like some parallax issues and other things where, you know, it can't see is can't see in certain angles and things like that. So, you know, the fact that those issues are still being worked and are not even close to being implemented is just, um, yeah, just really, really bad. I mean... We, we need this aircraft. This is, this is critical for us to be able to retire some of the 135s and other things. And it just doesn't sound like they have their act together yet. So. Well, there you go. This is what I poked you on last time, uh, right? Where it's like, well, you know, we want to retire stuff, but then the new things that we're supposed to be replacing that stuff are being dragged out late and underperforming, <laughs> right? Um, and, now I, and now Congress is like, I'm, I don't trust you. I'm not going to retire stuff. So it's like a, almost a chicken or the egg thing. It's like, who goes first? I mean, maybe Congress needs to take the leap of faith, but um, maybe that's the right well, answer. Well, I mean, I think we also have this thing that we we can't accept any risk in the system. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think, I mean, just look at some of the platforms that we're talking about, you know, the in terms of like some of the, some of the ships. And I mean, some of them take five, seven years, right? Like you don't always have as many as you want. And sometimes you just can't extend legacy aircraft. It's just too costly. So like at some point I think to, to win in this modernization fight, to say like, to make the investments we need to be, you know, be part of the future, we do have to accept some risk and capacity. Like we are not going to be able to do, you know, fight two battles at once, or we're not going to be able to fight, you know, at this level, um, at this level in multiple theaters or whatever, and take some risk and capacity so that we can still work out the issues but, but, you know, not, not continue to spend the own end money that needs to be in the RDT and account. So, yeah, I know it's tough decisions. Nothing's easy here. Yeah. I was just listening to an A16Z podcast with um, the founder of Dell and he's been there for like 30 years or something like that, you know, and they're talking about this story of when, you know, Dell went public and then it had some issues and they're looking to restructure. So he actually like bought out the company, took it private again. And then he basically just like put the acceleration on change. Right. And I guess they kind of like merged with VMware. They kind of built up a new kind of vertical offering 
and then they kind of re-IPO'd. It was like, it would have been impossible to have done the change that was necessary to make Dell viable for the future if I was still public because of that quarterly earnings, like myopic kind of view. And I almost wonder to what degree can you put some of this behind a wall so you don't have the same issues in DOD in terms of the industrial base and Congress and interests and all this type of stuff. You know, like, can you put it behind that wall? You know, let stuff happen um, and with a vision, of course. You're right. You know, one of the important things there was that he put skin in the game, right? So he bought his company back. But two, he, uh, he was a founder before. So, like, there was some kind of, um, understanding that he might be able to kind of reinvigorate that vision. So, um, not really sure what the answer is, but you know, you're right. The risk has to be taken at some point because if you stall forever, then you're just going to have the risk right before like the major event that you've been trying to prepare for. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of it is, uh, we've talked about this before where, you know, DOD sort of has a little bit of a tendency to view people as being very interchangeable, you know, as, you know, right. Oh, okay. This PO. Okay. Yep. You're moving on your PCS, even though you spent three years there and you finally got the team working good, you know, off you go. Um, and you know, we need to maybe think more, you know, uh, Hey, this person is doing a great job. It's actually really hard to find somebody who can do that good of a job. Uh, we need to make sure that person sticks around. So maybe one of the things that uh, you know, these, you know, generals in certain positions can't retire until they've completed, <laughs> they've completed the transition of technology. You know, there might be some, uh, some interesting, interesting incentives there to, uh, to maybe play with, but yeah, I'm with you. I would want to retire necessarily <laughs> if right. they were empowered to make the choices that could have such a massive impact on our national security in the future like fight right like they would love like admiral rickover you can't like right. drag that man away right right because right. he was given the authority and the power to do to bring to bear what his vision was um but you have to find that's really hard problem to find those people that have the right vision and the skill and the energy and the management and they really have to be these types of generalists that know literally everything right whereas the department of defense loves to functionalize and you know, separate everything into specialists. And there's no one that integrates all of this. We need that. And this is what I kind of call the founder led vision of like defense programming. Right. I, I kind of really believe in that, that vision that like, if you have a system where you grow people and kind of like through that continuous check and, and training and, you know, coming up through the ranks or whatever it is, you know, validate who those people are they just let them run, right? Kind of, to some degree, check up on what they're doing, make sure it makes sense. Um, if they're going off course or doing different things that not playing well, then you can fire them. But otherwise, you know, let them, let them run. Yeah. I thought your, your podcast with, um, with AJ, uh, of the, the Hermes, uh, Hermes CEO was, was perfect. Like, can you imagine, you know, him leading the company like during this like critical period where they're trying to make all this change? Like, his continuity is probably, you know, super critical to, to success because, you know, he's got the, he's got the vision. He understands the little piece parts and he knows, he knows enough about like the different technology areas. So yeah, you're right. We need to grow. We need to grow leaders who can own a domain and yeah. And if they're good, you know, if they're not good, you get, move them on. If they're great, you, you allow them to stay and be generals for as long as they want to be, be generals, give them the power, have the portfolios, then you can really, we could really affect some change. 
Well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks for joining me, Matt. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Eric.